Welcome to Flop Pod. Woo-hoo. Uh, so, did I ever tell you about that time that I auditioned for UBC? You auditioned for UBC? Oh, I auditioned for UBC. So, uh, back when I was in, you know, my first year of university, um, I realized that I just, I just couldn't do university, like, like going to classes, uh, getting horrible, horrible grades. It wasn't for me. Uh, but I had always loved doing theater. And so I, I don't know why, but I had this weird obsession with the West Coast of Canada. This weird obsession with like going to Vancouver, or going to BC. I don't know what it was. So I was researching uh, theater schools and I you know, decided that I was going to go to UBC. And uh, I applied. And the way that their application process worked is that... Um, you know, you could apply and they would ask you if you, you know, they, they would request an audition if you, you know, your grades or whatever were a certain level. And mine were not. So it was mid-July and I had gotten notice that um, they did late auditions. So I'm like, okay, this is great. This is great. And so I applied to do a late audition. And this was like the only way that I could get into the school. Uh, they offered three late audition slots, and I got one of them. Now, at the same time, uh, because I was like, I have to go to theater school, I have to go to theater school, I did a videotaped audition. I think, like, without even telling my parents, I'm not even sure, uh, I did a videotaped audition and sent it to Grenfell on the west coast of Newfoundland. And so I sent it off, didn't think anything of it. So I go to Vancouver and I'm, I'm staying at my aunt's place in White Rock and it was a, you know, a life-changing few days that I was there to say the least. Um, and I go to the audition and there's three of us there. And you, know, you had to do a classical piece and a modern piece and a song. And it was an interesting audition process. You, you did one audition piece and then you had to do like an improv thing where they had a door set up and you had to get somebody who was on the other side of the door to open the door. And I just, I mean, I didn't know what to do. I was 19 years old. I'm like, I don't, it's like, knock, knock, knock. You want to come outside? I got you an ice cream. Oh, look at this thing over here on the floor. You want to open the door and see it? It just, it was really bad. But I remember doing the classical piece. Uh, and it was a piece, I think, from the Duchess of Melfi, or Melfi. Uh, and I remember doing it. And I'm sort of, I'm on the ground on my knees, lamenting over this dead body. And I do it. And then there's, you know, four of them sitting at the front of the stage. And they go, mm, okay, can you do it again? But I want you to do it remorseful yeah yeah totally i can i can totally do it remorseful i can totally do it remorseful totally 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 and i'm there on the ground and i'm looking at the dead body that's not there and i do it the exact same way that i did it before and i got maybe maybe two lines into it and i hear a voice okay thank you i'm like okay do you want to hear my song no I'm like, oh, uh, okay. And 
So I, I left, and you know, I felt like, okay, okay. I had like the smallest glimmer of hope, but I knew in my heart of hearts that, nah, I totally just cocked that up. Totally cocked that up. And later on that evening, uh, I was on the phone talking to someone who was down home, and they had said, I don't want to tell you this, but you got into Grenfell. And I went, oh my God, I'm so excited. That's awesome. And the joke became with my family that, oh, uh, you know, you were going to end up on the West Coast anyway. So, you know, cocking it up in one place kind of brought me to another. And that is where I met Kevin Woolridge. So um, I've known Kevin Woolridge for a very long time. My very first kind of professionally paid theater me not being a child was for Shakespeare by the Sea. And uh, Kevin uh, was the director, so I got to work with him and I worked with him in a number of times in like a number of uh, different ways throughout the years. Sometimes we've acted in the same thing. Sometimes he's been a director, I've been a stage manager, he's been a musical director. Um, so uh, we kind of have this long history of working with one another and I just, uh, think he's one of the most generous uh, people around and an extremely um, thoughtful director. If you ever have the chance to work with him, I really, really recommend it. Um, but uh, in 2017, we were working together uh, for Isla Mort uh, Theatre Festival um, and uh, my mother-in-law passed away. Um, and she passed away um, the day of our festival opening. Uh, so I wasn't able to leave that day, but we had a little bit of a hiatus right after. So um, we did our, our opening night. It was like opening night right into hiatus um, because we had done like a lot of rehearsals and there was a break with the venue. Um, and I flew back to St. John's uh, to be uh, with my husband for a couple of days and, and my family to, you know, um, do that whole thing. And then I flew back uh, into Corner Brook um, to drive uh, to Isla Mort to continue the rest of the season. It just so happened that Kevin, who was the director um, of the season, and typically the director doesn't necessarily stay uh, for the run of the season, they direct and then they move on. He just happened to be touring his show in Cornerbrook when I arrived in Cornerbrook. So I was able to see his show, The Chairs, and then he very generously offered to drive me to Island Mort so I could be there in time for the show. We'd only performed the show once, so the idea was we're going to leave early in the morning, get into Island Mort in the afternoon so we can run the show again before we do it in the evening, which would be great. We get on the highway and we are driving on the highway from Cornerbrook literally 45 seconds when Kevin blows out his tire. You need to understand that um, it is Kevin's first car. You need to understand that Kevin and I are both um, cool-headed but kind of nervous people. You need to understand that there was a timeline that I needed to be there so that I could rehearse and also I needed to be there because the show was that night and we don't have understudies. Um, you also need to know that my mother-in-law had just passed, so I was kind of particularly um, sensitive and a little bit more nervous than I would be. And so we had to haul the, you know, bring the car to the to the side of the road in the middle of the highway um, and unload all of the props from Kevin's show 
on the side of the road to get this little baby spare tire on and then get it to a garage in the hopes that I have now missed rehearsal in the hopes that we can get me to the show on time. In the meantime, beautiful Nora Barker is like furiously trying to learn my part just in case I don't make it um, there. And uh, <laughs> it was just all of the things that could have gone wrong um, just at the wrong time happened, but I'm so glad I got to share it with Kevin. And while we were waiting for the tire to get fixed because he was so stressed out, I took him to his favorite spot, Pizza Delight or spaghetti and meatballs. We made it on the road. I made it. I walked into the show, walked into the show. I didn't get to run it. And it's a very choreographically heavy piece. Uh, we hadn't seen each other in a week and we hadn't rehearsed it in a week. Walked into the show, just like, just threw out, like Nora held my dress. I put it on and then I walked on stage and, and did the show. So that's my um, kind of flop. Kevin story and it was a really fun moment to share and uh, I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Kevin. Kevin Woolridge is a Newfoundland-based theater artist with an on-stage and behind-the-scenes practice that spans over 20 years. He is the past recipient of the Tommy Sexton Triple Threat Award and holds a BFA acting from Grenfell College and an MFA directing creation from York University. In addition to working with just about every theater company on the island, Kevin created and runs a micro-theater project, Temporary Theater. Often found at Pizza Delight, he is one of the world's great romantics and a treasured collaborator. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Oh my God, I feel like a theme song is going to start, like this is your life, and like people are going to come out I haven't seen in 20 years, but they won't because I'm home looking at a computer. And we don't have the budget yet, but that's like, I'd love that. That's our next step. Oh, I also love Pizza Delight. Their their spaghetti and meatballs is fantastic. I have watched you eat it um, many times. <laughs> it's good tour food. Solid. Can you give <laughs> our listeners a little bit of your origin story? Tell us how you got started in this crazy biz. Okay, my origin story. Um, let's see. Uh, I grew up in Goulds. Uh, via Kilbride, via Shea Heights, via Topsail Road, originally. Um, and we moved into the ghouls, I think I was 10 or 11 years old. And that's when I kind of discovered the arts, like capital A, like little bits of everything. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of friends. I was a new kid. So I started drawing a lot and I drew mini comics, uh, which I still have. I still have all my old comics from when I was a kid. Um, and then I got into band that same year um, and started learning music. And being someone who digs a lot of things, I can't just dig something, I have to learn how to do it. So I started writing music around the same time, uh, really bad music. And I didn't know any of the rules of notation, but I would write music anyways. Um, and then I got my first typewriter around that time and I started writing short stories because I was writing role-playing games as well. So, um, and then theater came around, like in grade six or grade seven. Um, it was in my first play, which was like um, a Christmas show. Um, that gets back to my flop, so I'm gonna, I'll come back around to that afterwards. Uh, and then in high school, uh, choir and jazz band and vocal jazz combo and public speaking and acting classes, all that kind of stuff. And some really amazing teachers, um, Tony Duffinet, um, and 
uh, Michelle Din and Barbara O'Keefe, Darren McDonald, a whole bunch of wonderful, very supportive folks who kind of launched me into all of these different areas, especially in theater. And it really, really started for me because I discovered Shakespeare in high school um, and fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it, not just because it was, I loved the stories and, and the language, but because I understood it, I took to it really, really quickly. And that was really exciting to actually like, oh my God, I, I know what this all means. Well, I don't know what it all means, but I can look up meanings of things. And I, but I understand the language and I can speak it. And that was really, really exciting. And then one summer, I think uh, grade 10, maybe, I saw an ad in the paper uh, you don't see ads in the paper anymore for auditions. I feel like that doesn't happen anymore. But this was the early 90s uh, when that still happened. And it was an ad for uh, Much Ado About Nothing with um, Mom Drama Summer Shakespeare program. And I thought, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to audition for that. I love Shakespeare. And I've done some acting now in high school. And I, I like it. And I'm going to go do it. So uh, my mom and dad came with me. <laughs> to the Reed Theater, dad drove and waited in the car and my mom came inside with me. Uh, Kelly Jones was the very first person I met in the wider theater community. She was the stage manager, so she was on the table out front and she was very sweet and wonderful, of course, as she is. Uh, and I went inside and I did my audition and I got cast as the part of Claudio, uh, one of the leads, you know, like one of the, the nice romantic leads with a, some really great meaty stuff uh, Gordon Jones was directing, and that show introduced me to so many people. Oh my goodness, um, a lot of names that I've forgotten because they're people who have moved on to other things and I haven't seen in a long time, but um, Jolene Kiley was the assistant director on that show, um, Brad Hodder was in it, Dave Walsh, Michael Nolan, a whole, whole um, great crowd of people. And from meeting um, Jillian on that show, um, she was just about to launch Artistic Prod of Newfoundland with a show called In Your Dreams, Troy. And they were looking for a ton of people to be in it because it was going to be a big, it was a ton of characters and a big chorus. And so she said, I should audition for this show. And I was still in high school. I was, I think, you know, I was you know, a very shy little kid from a Catholic school in the Ghouls who was just getting introduced to this wider community. Um, and so I ended up in that show, in the chorus. Between Summer Shakespeare and that first artistic fraud show, I like basically, for the early 90s anyway, like met everybody. <laughs> and that was really exciting um, and really opened myself up to the community and the kind of work that was happening. Um, I still wasn't really actively involved as an audience member. I was more of a, of a theater maker than a theater goer. I didn't see a whole lot of work, but I loved doing shows. And mostly what I was doing was Shakespeare and musicals. So um, a couple of summers of um, Summer Shakespeare with Gordon and then Shakespeare by the Sea, some musicals with like St. John's Players and Peter McDonald Productions, a bunch of that kind of stuff. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, I was writing, I started writing plays because of course if I dig something I got to learn how to do all of it. So I started writing plays in high school. I wrote a musical um, that will never see the light of day because it's absolutely awful. <laughs> um, but of course I was doing so much music at the same time that it was kind of expected. And I expected it myself that I would go to music school when I finished. Um, and so I did. And then uh, after music school, I went to Grenfell College and did theater. And then after that, just the gigging life 
for the next 12 years until I went to York and did my master's. And this has pretty much been it. And, and the wonderful thing about all of it, and I'll talk about it when we talk about the flop, is that my folks have been extremely supportive. No matter what direction I go in, they're just like, okay. <laughs> you know, there hasn't been any question about it. Um, and that's been wonderful. I wouldn't be able to do what I do um, without their support. Uh, a funny little side note to that uh, that origin story is that uh, in my first year at Grenfell, uh, it was Kevin's second year at Grenfell, and mm -hmm. Kevin ended up um, living in our laundry room for two semesters. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was big enough for a bed, and Kevin's like, hmm, okay. It it was not big enough for a bed. Uh, no, it wasn't. It, it was it was big enough. <laughs> It was big enough for a small cot, but only if it was it was going in one direction. If it went in the other direction, it would fold up on the sides by because it, it would hit the walls. And if I remember correctly, Mark, the landlord didn't know I was there. It was all he a secret. No and one day he popped by to check something. I think in the stairwell, and I was in my bedroom with the door closed, and didn't realize he was coming in, and just sat there in the dark scared to death as quiet as possible waiting for him to leave and hoping he would not open the door <laughs> <laughs> i love that little apartment so much <laughs> yeah it was uh, great times great times um, um earlier uh, when we first started up the the podcast myself and mark did these intros in terms of like who we thought we were um and mine was uh jack of all trades master of maybe two uh but you do a lot but kev you are someone that multitasks works in a bunch of different areas and it seems to me through your origin story has always gone down different paths. I'm wondering, um, does that have to do with um, opportunities? Does that have to do with um, a different creative outlet connects to some different part of you? Why do, why do you think that is? Because you have so many branches from one root. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I've always been interested in a whole bunch of different things. and. Certainly opportunity is part of it. Uh, occasionally you're, you're sitting in a talk back and somebody asks you what attracted you to the project. And I did say out loud once down at the hall, um, the money, it was a job. You know, <laughs> I, I did say that once. Um, because especially not just in your early career, but even in your mid-career where I think I am, you're still really just doing it because it's work, not because it's necessarily a project you want to work on. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. It, there is something that's kind of related to that is if I'm working on something, because I also um, draw comic books even now, um, mini comics and um, working on a second novel at the moment. Um, if, if I get stuck in a particular thing that I'm working on, whether that's a play or a song or, or a comic, I'll, I'll move to another medium to try to tell the same story. Um, and that will usually loosen up a bunch of stuff. So, for example, right now I'm working on a novel, um, which is based on my graphic novel. And it's kind of a retelling of that story. But what's so fascinating and what I'm loving about it so much 
is because I'm having to approach the same story in a literary way instead of a visual way, um, I'm having to invent a, a whole bunch of new things about the story and about the characters and where they live and solving little tiny problems that in the visual world um, didn't matter at all. Um, and that's been a really, really interesting thing to do. Maybe I just get bored and I have to jump around and come back to something. Um, it took me a long time to, to really accept that a project can be laid down and come back to because I've always been somebody who, who has to just work on something until it's completed. Even when I was in school, if I'm writing a paper, I've got to sit down and write this whole paper in one go. I can't come back to it. It's got to be one go or else I'll lose something. Um, until I got to uh, grad school and realized, no, that's impossible. <laughs> this paper is going to take more than a night, Kevin. <laughs> so um, it took me a long time to really accept that you could come back to something and keep working on it. But that is so important, especially, well, in, in all the arts, um, but especially in theater and as a collaborator, you want to be able to step aside for a second and come back later. Breathe, breath, you know. So... I guess in the vein of putting something down and coming back to it later, you mentioned that you wrote a musical that's never going to see the light of day. <laughs> so what, what is it about that specific thing that you have created that you just don't want to come back to? Oh, it was just awful. I mean, a lot, <laughs> you know, um, there's that, that, that famous quote by uh, Picasso, which I'm totally going to paraphrase and get wrong, where somebody asked him, you know, what's, what's the favorite thing you've done? And he says, oh, the last thing I did, right? Because, because the thing that you're working on at the moment is the thing you're excited about and the thing that you like and, and what's in the past is in the past. And sometimes things that are far in the past should never be uh, unburied, you know? Like um, I, in, in those early days, like I did a one-man show there is a VHS tape of it, which will never be viewed. You know, maybe when I'm like 80 years old, I will take it out and go, oh, look at that young man trying to do something that's just awful, you know? <laughs> but, but this musical was, I mean, it was really bad because at the time, like, yeah, I was writing, I, I started to write plays and I was writing music, but I was also heavily into like, Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy. All my short stories were fantasy oriented. I wasn't writing anything in the real world. And so this musical was basically the Highlander meets um, uh, Twilight, uh, you know, in the early 90s before Twilight existed. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember, <laughs> like, we actually wanted to do it. Like, I remember having auditions in high school with a bunch of people, but it, it never got off the ground. Um, but uh, one of my classmates was Alan Hawke. Of course, everybody knows Alan nowadays, but uh, he loved it because he was a big Highlander fan, you know, and he was like, oh, man, this is great, Kevin. Like, oh, yeah, swords and stuff. And I was like, well, I look at it now. And of course, I still have everything. You know, I haven't thrown anything out. I've got the score. I've got the score to that show. And I've got the cassette tape that I recorded all my songs on with a Casio keyboard and me singing all the parts. It still exists. Will it see the light of day? Never. <laughs> you, Mark and I both jumped in at the same time because we needed to. I just, to. I, Hako, if you're listening, Kevin still has it. Make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> just before we move on from this, uh, 
generous topic, you have to tell us what one of the songs was called. Uh, one of, okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit and, and I'll tell you what, what the best song was called. And it's a song that I've actually cribbed from for uh, another song, which I wrote years later. And I was like, you know what? Some of that was actually kind of good. It was called By the Candlelight. Yeah. Oh. It was like the sad, slow song of a guy who gets a letter from a girl, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's very sweet. Yeah. Let's put up the crowdfunder. I'm like, I got... <laughs> I got, I got 20 bucks. This is, let's see if we can make it happen. Kevin, will you tell us about your flop, please? I will. I'm going to tell you one little tiny quick flop, which is related to my origin, and then I'll give you the big one. So that, that first, one of the very first shows I did uh, in grade six, I think, something like that, uh, was a show called No Room at the Inn. It was a Christmas play. Uh, it was Catholic school. Uh, a nun directed it, Sister Rosaline Hines. And I was cast as the lead, the innkeeper. Very exciting. I had so many lines. I remember looking at the script and going, oh my God, I got so much to say, yay. Um, and Sister Hines was really, really sweet. I got a picture of her at my high school graduation, actually. She came to that. Um, and uh, she would stand in the back of the gymnasium and have me yell out her first name, Rosaline, Rosaline, as loud as I could, to try to work on my projection. I was a little tiny guy with a little tiny voice who drew pictures and wrote role-playing games and got beat up after class. You know, I was not, didn't have a whole lot of confidence on the stage, uh, but I got cast as the lead. And we did a rehearsal and then I was recast. <laughs> so, so my first flop was in like my first show where I lost the lead role. I had to give my script to one of the other students and I got a new script. I was cast as one of the wise men. I got one line um, and my memory is not great because this was a very long time ago, 30 years or whatever. Uh, but I do remember her saying something along the lines of, I was too nice. I was too kind because the innkeeper is supposed to be gruff and mean, mean with his wife. And I was, I was just, I was too kind. And so I lost that role. Isn't that awful? Anyway, that's that's a first little flop related to my my origin story, which that kind of set a precedent then for the for the rest of my career. <laughs> that was your first little taste of like toxic masculinity. You're lovely, Kevin, and you are kind. And I could imagine just your little sweet self. What a sin. Both um, uh, both myself and Mark, you could see the point where our hearts break on the Zoom call. We were, our hearts were breaking <laughs> for little Kevin. Oh. I just, that's so terrible. <laughs> I can't even, like, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but, like, I was Joseph, and I had to carry a pregnant Mary into the manger. <laughs> Tell us about your big flop, Kevin. Uh, so my big flop, really, uh, was getting kicked out of music school. That's that's um, that's the kind of the big big flop because um, for a long time that's where I expected to go. It's what I expected my life to be. Um, I I kind of wanted to be a film composer. That was like my thing. I'm going to go to music school and be a film composer. And um, I soon discovered uh, while I was there that I just lost interest. I wasn't really interested in it anymore. 
I loved playing music, but I was bored in a lot of my classes. I was falling asleep, especially music history and music theory. And I wanted to be a composer and I'm falling asleep in theory class. It's not a good thing, right? So that's kind of like definitely my big flop. I don't regret that it happened because, you know, um, all of our past mistakes, of course, inform our future. That's what this podcast is all about, really. Uh, so I don't regret that it happened because it led me to where I am. And if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have gone to theater school. I wouldn't have met everybody I'd met. My life would be completely different. But I regret that uh, that my actions made it happen. You know, that I um, got bored and gave up, I guess. Yeah, essentially. What was your uh, instrument? I was a tuba major. Yeah, so I started playing tuba in grade six, as I said um, earlier, I started band, and but it was the tuba. And when I started in grade six, I played the sousaphone, the big marching instrument. And I was a little tiny guy. And uh, luckily we lived on the same street as my school. So I would walk home with it um, after school to practice. I loved playing it. And uh, my one-on-one -on -one classes uh, went really well, like I, because I loved playing, I loved performing, I loved music. I think I'm a better musician now than I was then. Um, but uh, it just it got really boring, and I found more of a um, of a world outside of class. You know, I was still doing theater, and um, I had met a bunch of people through the Society of Creative Anachronisms, which was the medieval society on campus and uh, a lot of interests that um, I didn't really know about. And I don't know, it just, it wasn't gelling. And um, so in my third year, I got all the way to third year. Um, you know, my grades dropped dramatically in one semester and I got a letter that said, you know, we have to ask you to withdraw. I could still stay in the university, just not in the program anymore. So I kind of scrambled, you know, I was like, okay, what am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? And, um, I applied to NTS as an actor. I said, well, okay, I love theater. Let's go to NTS. Uh, Hako got in. Come on. <laughs> but but uh, I didn't get in. I didn't get in. And um, I ran into an old friend of mine from high school, Janet Bartlett. Some of you might know Janet. And uh, she said that she was going to Grenfell College in the fall and that they do late auditions because I had missed the date. And I said, okay, maybe I'll do a late audition. And I got in and ended up, ended up going to Grenfell College. And it was night and day from music school to theater school for me, because um, just in terms of support and community and family that I found, like I had friends at, at the School of Music, but um, aside from my, my private instructor, I, I don't know, things just weren't clicking. And when I got to Grandville College, it felt more like home to me. Um, and my grades reflected that I did really, really well, you know. When I finished, the head of the program, uh, Ken Livingston, gave me a pamphlet for York and said, okay, Kevin, MFA time. Here you go. There's your pamphlet. Um, but I, I had been doing so much writing that I was really interested in being a playwright. And um, my acting professor, Arif Hasnane, in that last year, he said, Kevin, you should go to NTS and do the playwriting program. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm just going to apply to NTS. So I applied to NTS again this time for the playwriting program. Um, once again, didn't get in. 
uh, and ended up uh, applying to education because everybody else was doing it. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do education. And then last minute dropped out. I was like, you know what? I don't, actually don't want to do this. I don't want to do education. Um, so I didn't. And that, uh, you know, it was just gigging and gigging from then on. The irony is my, my first kind of professional gig upon graduation. Now, I'd done professional gigs before that. But my first one upon graduating theater school was as a musical director <laughs> uh, for the Gross Morin um, TNL um, summer festival out there. And even when I was at Grenfell College, I was doing a lot of music for the shows. Um, in first year, I was working as a musical director for the first year show and a music coach. Second year, I wrote a bunch of incidental music for one of the Shakespeare shows. And then I had to actually say, you know, to the instructors, listen, um, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm here to, to be a better actor and to do acting. And to their credit, in my third and fourth year, I didn't do any music. They just cast me in shows. And some of those shows and roles that I played are my favorite parts I've had to this day, you know, and that was 17 years ago. <laughs> so 18 years ago. Yeah. So then what led you um, to York some years later? So was the seed planted um, from Ken and it, it just was buried for a while? Like, how did you end up kind of the trajectory was a little bit later, but how did you end up there? Yeah, it was definitely buried for a while, but it had always been there. Um, while I was at Grenfell College, I'd always thought about it. Um, in fact, at the School of Fine Arts Awards at the end of um, the, my fourth year, uh, one of the awards that I got, I got two awards, very special, but one of my awards was a, a framed um, piece of paper that just said MFA on it, which was a very sweet gift. Um, so it had always been something that I wanted to do, um, but I, you know, I got caught up in in the work, you know, from from graduating and just it was just all summer stock. And then I moved away to England for two years and came back, and it was just summer stock and summer stock and other gigs. Um, and then I started getting back into cartooning, and I was doing a whole bunch of that. There were a couple of years where I was just really focusing on that, and I had a strip in one of the local papers, and I was doing conferences and stuff. Um, one of the problems I've always felt that I've had in my life is not being able to focus on one thing. You know, you talk about being a jack-of-all-trades type thing. I've always felt that if I had just focused on one thing, maybe I would be a little bit more successful <laughs> than, than I am at the moment, you know, um, or a little bit better at doing things. So there was one year, uh, 2013, I think it was, something like that, where I got really busy with a bunch of different projects all at the one time. So I was doing the um, uh, filmmaking, introduction to filmmaking class at NIFCO, and I was directing a music video for Chris Kirby. And it was all uh, based on my characters and my comics. So it was all like little puppet versions. But at the same time as doing that, I was also doing the interior art and layout for the Once is Christmas CD. And um, I was also doing a poster for, um, for a fan film for somebody else. So I was doing a bunch of like different work and a lot of it was in graphic design. And I was completely in over my head, like completely. I love doing this stuff. I was interested in it, but um, I kept running into roadblocks uh, in terms of my skill level, technical skill level, especially when it comes to digital work. And then I thought, okay, well, maybe I need to go back to school. Maybe I need to go and do graphic design at Coma. Okay, I'll do that. So I applied, put together a little portfolio, and I got in. 
and then I, I thought, oh, what am I doing? If I'm going back to school, because I essentially did eight years of university in undergrad, all total. Um, if I'm going back to school, I, I should do the MFA. That's what I wanted to do years ago, so I should apply. Um, so I ended up applying, and um, that's kind of how that came about. And I was really shocked, shocked and amazed that I got in. I couldn't believe it. I went up for the interview, and I'm sitting in this room full of unbelievable artists from all across Canada and a few from the States. And I remember sitting next to Keith Pike. And uh, I didn't really know Keith very well. I think I auditioned for him once for a part that I didn't get, uh, <laughs> as, as usual. But I remember sitting next to Keith and realizing, oh, yeah, it's Keith Pike. Yeah, we're both from Newfoundland. There's no way we're both getting in. They're not taking two Newfoundlanders. That's not going to happen. Oh, my God. But they did, <laughs> which, was, which was really nice. And that program really changed a lot for me in terms of how I view theater and how I work um, and accepting a lot of the um, the qualities uh, of myself and my work that that I hadn't accepted but are not bad things you know because there are things that you that you realize about yourself and that you want to change but then there's other stuff that you realize about yourself that you go that's actually half decent. <laughs> I had the uh, the extreme privilege when I was in theater school. Um, I was in third year, you were in fourth year. Uh, and it was directed study time. And Shannon Morin had a script that you had written called Henrik Ibsen Eats All My Groceries, which was, I guess, my first experience in doing something that was completely experimental. It was just, it was a series of lines that on the surface seemed completely disjointed. They had zero connection, but the piece made so much sense and getting to perform it just felt so good. It, it's one of my favorite memories from Grenfell. Like I, I remember standing on that stage with Susan Carpenter and the two of us doing the show and just like I, plain as day, I remember it so clearly. And that I find that, it was so much fun. And I find that the work that I've seen you do since, you know, I've moved back home and then you've come back from doing your MFA, it's so different, but it all works so well. Um, the last piece that I saw in the temporary theater, um, if, you know, listeners didn't get a chance to see it, it was so cool. There was like boxes that you could... It was, it was almost like a choose-your-own-adventure thing. And I got to say, I was just mesmerized by a, a flashlight on a pen. It was absolutely, like, just so engaging, so enthralling. I just, I, I really enjoy what you do, Kevin. Oh, thank you, Mark. Like, it's like, oh, my God, I'm going to, like, write a play after this. I'm so, like, yay. <laughs> I mean, I think you should go back to that musical that you had written. No, 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 no. Zhuzh it up a bit. I don't know. <laughs> if I want a reminder of how awful I am and how awful my work is, yes, I will listen to that. <laughs> and then change careers. But like, I mean, every, every, probably every two years, I'm like, I got to get out. And I start looking for work elsewhere, you know, like, and I look for jobs that have uh, transferable skills, usually, which means usually marketing and never get any interviews. And then a gig will come up and I'll be like, all right, I guess I'm, I'm back to theater again. 
for a while. But I got to say, watching watching that show, uh, the Henry Gibson show, was an absolute treat. Absolute treat. You you and Susan were so wonderful on stage. You worked so well together. Um, and I had purposefully not talked to Shannon about that show at all. I just handed him the script. Because, like you said, the script was just a series of lines without any context for for character or even number of characters. So to walk in and see that he had just turned it into just two people talking to each other in a series of conversations, I was like, wow, that's so cool. Because, you know, loosely in my brain, it was a crowd scene. And so to get oh. to see it like that, it was so interesting. It was really, really wonderful. It's, it's interesting because to, like, Again, to this day, it's the most honest dialogue about a relationship right. that I think I've experienced on stage. Oh, that's wonderful. I find, um, because I still have all my old scripts, and I was writing so much in university. That's the one thing that I love about those settings is because you're, you're immersed in it and constantly talking about it and doing it, it, it stokes the engine, you know? So I wrote more in university than, than I, well, that's a lie. I've written much more since, but a lot of time has passed since undergrad. <laughs> but at the time, I was writing so much and all the time, poetry and plays, and, and I've got all that material still. And it's a wonderful kind of warehouse of stuff that I can dip into and go, you know what, that little tiny seed there was really great. The dialogue is awful but I love those characters. So that's something I can steal from, constantly stealing from myself. And there's a couple of like little short plays that I wrote back then that um, I'm always wanting to go back and revise and kind of do again, you know? What do you think the themes uh, that are that keep coming up in your work? Is there a recurring motif that you can recognize in your work? Huh, you know, um... I don't know if there is. I, no, I don't think there is. I mean, maybe in my early work, there might have been some recurring themes. But but nowadays, like a lot of stuff that I write, uh, like with the boxes show, I'm, I'm not really um, aiming for anything in, in specific in terms of a theme. It's more of an experience. Uh, I guess I'm more interested in the in the process and the experience between the actor and the space and audience that I am um, specifically with, with a story or a script, at least right now at this moment is how I'm thinking. And that's just in that medium. <laughs> I'm very much interested in story in the, in the novel <laughs> that I'm working on. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you've seen some of my work. Is there anything that, that you guys, uh, any theme pop out? Yeah, I think um, you have a definite tendency towards ambiguity. Um, yeah. and, and mystery. So I think all of your pieces, uh, I didn't see the, the piece that Mark was describing, but I've, I, I've been in your shows and I've been directed by you in work that is yours and that is not yours. Um, mm. And I think something that you like is a twist for the audience. I think you are um, a person really, you know, it's a little cliche, but show don't tell. I think you are someone that likes to kind of, you know, thread, uh, you know, the wool through the maze. You mm -hmm. like, you don't necessarily want to give it all away at the beginning. And when I watch your show, so I'm thinking of um, your your one man show, uh, The Chairs, in which you play three separate characters and you're yeah. not sure 
who those people are, um, how they're gendered, where they came from, how they connect to one another or not. Um, and then at the end, it's, it's still a little ambiguous, which I really, and the audience is left to draw their own conclusions. Similarly, um, the two-hander that I was in and then the rain came, that is very ambiguous for mm -hmm. the audience. Um, and what's so interesting is the dialogue that's created um, through the mystery between an audience and the people on stage, uh, on stage and what's happening. And your most recent show, The Boxes, that was where I felt it was almost its fullest, that dialectic between the performer um, and the audience. Jill Dolan calls it a utopian performative, mm -hmm. uh, when you are able to find that connectivity in the moment. So I would say that that's your theme. That's your, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> um, while we're kind of on the topic of, of the work that you've been creating, um, do you want to sort of give us a rundown of the temporary theater and what it is and how it's been influencing what you've been creating? Yeah, sure. Um, so the temporary theater is essentially a portable venue. Um, it's 11 by 18 or 18 by 21. I can't remember the exact dimensions because there are two different versions of it, actually. It can get a little bit smaller. Um, it's basically a big black box made out of um, uh, theater drapes and PVC piping. It can hold, like a big shoe box, and it can hold uh, comfortably probably 15 audience members. But again, everything is contextual, depends on the piece. Maybe you're gonna have uh, a piece where there's one actor standing in a corner and you've got 20 audience members, you know? Uh, it all depends on that. But comfortably about 15 audience members. Um, the idea behind it was really, I got sick of not being able to book a venue. Um, uh, back in the day, like my very, very first show, my, um, I did a sketch comedy. This was in 1999, I think, or something like that, 98 at the basement theater, now the Barbara Barrett. And back then, you could you could book the basement like a month in advance, you know? Uh, you could have an idea for a show and go, oh yeah, that'd be great, yeah, let's do that. Let's, um, okay, I'm gonna call up the Barrett and we're gonna, we're gonna book it for like next month. <laughs> and you could, you could reasonably do that depending on the time of year. Um, but it got to a point, um, especially when I finished York, you know, I came out wanting to do all this stuff and there were a bunch of years when I just could not find space, um, at least in the time frame that I wanted to find space in, you know, because you get an idea and I want to rush to it, you know, while the while the iron is still hot, right? Um, I don't want to plan two years in advance for production because by then I'm not going to care about that show at all because I've moved on to something else. You know, that's kind of, maybe that's why I had to leave music school. <laughs> um so anyway, I got really frustrated by the lack of space and I thought, how can I solve this? Well, I really want my own space. And I, I think a lot of theater folks will, as they're walking down the street, will see like buildings for sale and, and go, oh, I can put a theater in there. I mean, it's, it's I, I think everybody does that, at least theater artists anyway. I certainly do it. Um, and so I thought, okay, there's no way I can do that There's because no, I can't afford it. Uh, what about something that portable? Um, and I had gotten really interested in intimate theater when I was at York, um, and intimate performance and small spaces, things that I was not interested in at all before I got there. 
I always was a very private audience member. I wanted them very far away so I could experience it, but still be, you know, safe. Uh, and the same thing as a performer, but that really working in the studio environments at York opened me up to um, the different uh, relationship between audience performer in an intimate space and what that can bring to a performance. And it's just absolutely wonderful. It's so different and beautiful and honest um, and scary uh, and wonderful. Did I say wonderful? It's wonderful. So uh, <laughs> I was touring um, uh, Tartuffe with the NAC um, doing a provincial tour. I was working as the assistant director on that but I still got to tour around with them, which was wonderful. But it meant I had a lot of time to sit in my hotel room and I started sketching ideas for what could be a portable venue. I thought, yeah, you could do it with pipes and drape and put it up. And then it was just a matter of lots of problem solving, you know, like what's it gonna be built out of? How am I gonna afford it? Um, I can't go outside because if it goes outside, it could get rained on. Um, it could blow away because it's a Newfoundland, it would be too cold. Uh, there would be sound bleed, all that kind of stuff. So the idea, the original idea, which I still haven't perfected, I don't know if it's even possible. I think I need a larger team. It's just me, which really sucks. I need more people. Um, was to kind of set up a, a roaming tour circuit, you know, within the St. John's metro area of different locations that are amicable to having this thing set up in whatever space that they have. Um, you know, certain nights of, of a month, you know, and have a kind of like rotating, moving venue, a, a temporary theater, you know, as it were. And if, if you had that kind of tour circuit of a bunch of places that you knew potentially could have available space and available dates, then you could start to actually rent the space and program work in it, you know. Um, but because it's just me at the moment, um, and you know, this is not a full-time job, it doesn't pay me anything really. Um, it's hard to get, to, it's been hard for me to actually um, create that, you know? Uh, it's been hard just to get it up into places and run into a lot of problems uh, because it's a new thing, it's a different thing. It's, it's, and the places that you wanna approach are not gonna know exactly what you're talking about, you know? If you go to a company that happens to have a warehouse or has a big open lobby that is closed in the evenings to the public, and you say, hey, I wanna put up a little theater in there and do a show for two nights. They're gonna say, what? How does that, how does that work? You know, um, but it's a very cool thing. And when it is up and I've done four shows in it, three shows so far, one, two, three, three shows in it so far. Whenever it's been up, it's just been a joy. I get so happy. It's like my happy place because um, it's my own little theater, you know, which is kind of the dream. Yeah, so that's what the temporary theater is. Every time I see it, because uh, I think the last thing they had it up was December of last year. Yeah. You did uh, sort of like a mini, like, going to put it up in the Arts and Culture Center for one day and then take it down. Uh, even when I was there for like half an hour to an hour, there were five or six artists that came in that were just like, it, it became an idea factory where everybody was saying, oh, it would be so cool if you could do this, if you could do that. Like, I, I even remember just like walking around and going like, hmm, where are the seams? And thinking like, okay, what happens if like all, like all the audience sees is somebody's hands 
kind of emerging from the wall like what what does that create like it it's an incredibly inspiring face that was such a really special day because um i just set it up for an open house uh, but also as an opportunity for me to kind of workshop some spacing stuff for the boxes show um, and I remember at one point, you know, a bunch of folks, artists that were in there were just sitting down and nobody was saying anything. They were just looking around in silence. And, and I kind of felt like I had to fill the space, but, but I, I knew uh, that really they were thinking about the possibilities, right, and what they would do in it. Um, and that's, that's one of the biggest challenges about it is that aside from finding a place to set it up uh, for performance, you really need to also find a place to set it up so you can experiment, right? You need you need work time in it, right? Um, and I've when I was building it, I was originally setting up in my apartment, <laughs> which is not eight foot ceilings at all. <laughs> and there were there were moments when it fell down and I was moving furniture around, and it was really weird. Um, but to do that kind of experimenting and see what's possible you also need some space, right? And, and that's the nice thing about, um, about the Arts and Culture Center and, that, and those rooms there is that I could block a big chunk of time. You know, it takes about two hours to put up and about 45 minutes to take down, you know? So if I'm able to book a, a good bit of time, I could get a couple of hours in a workshop, you know, before I have to pack it all away. What's your dream project, Kevin? Oh, my dream project. Oh my goodness. Um, well, I mean, for a long time, my dream project was uh, to play Dr. Faustus. Um, and Phil Goodridge, Goodridge and I had talked for years and years about doing a production of Faustus, where I would do Faustus, he would do Mephistopheles. Um, and eventually we did do the show. Uh, and it was the first um, play by a temporary theater company, but it was before the temporary theater existed. And um, I didn't play Faustus, I directed it. Uh, Michael Broderick Smith played um, Faustus and he was brilliant, so glad to have him have him in it. But uh, that was certainly a dream role. But I mean, there are a million dream roles and, and I, I, I would love to play Hamlet. That's very cliche, but like, and also there's a bunch of roles that I'm never gonna get cast as, you know, I'm never gonna get cast as Hamlet. That's not gonna happen, my time is done. And, and you know, I kind of accept that. Uh, mostly I produce my own work because I find as an actor, I just don't get cast or roles don't come up that um, that are okay for me or that I know I could fit. Um, and again, you don't see audition calls as often as you used to back in the day. Um, and also I just don't get approached as a director very often or as a writer uh, every once in a blue moon. Um, it's the kind of thing, you know, where if you're not, if you're not actively visible in the community, sometimes people just forget that you do certain things you know? Um, so I keep plugging away producing my own work uh, and would love to work with other people, get hired as a director somewhere to work on a show. I mean, it does happen occasionally. I did some directing this summer in, in Trinity at Rising Tide Theater, um, which was nice, but I suppose my dream project would really be to, to kind of create that circuit for the temporary theater, like to have a board to have a group of people uh, who who also believe in it and want to see it grow um, and are excited about it and want to do things in it. I would love to be able to like show up to the temporary theater to see a show that I didn't produce, you know, where I'm just kind of the venue owner, uh, mentor, 
type person, you know, and I can go in and say, hey, guys, this is great. Oh, I can't wait to see it. You know, that would be lovely. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with us, Kevin. This has been so wonderful. I'm such huge fans. I, Lynn, when you messaged me the other day, I remember I responded with, uh, if I had an agent, I would be like bugging my agent to try to get me on the show. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Mark. No, 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 no. No? No, that was a little way too high. Ooh. <laughs> take it down, take it down. Take it down, take it down. <laughs> Hi, Lynn. Are you giving me a Jiffy Cat voice? Hey, bud. <laughs> thanks, don't, bud. Don't, don't put on your straight voice. No, thanks. Just do it. Okay, ready? <laughs> <laughs>